Because you get that legend is a phrase bandied around sport far too easily. Because you get that politics is more about what's possible. Because you get that a cryptic clue can have a simple solution. Because you get the benefit of hearing other opinions. The Irish Times. Because you get it. Enjoy unlimited access to informed opinion and real news. Visit irishtimes.com and get the first month for just one euro. T's and C's apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. June 1973. One morning in June, nearly 50 years ago, a new customer walked into the branch of the Munster and Leinster Bank on Dame Street in Dublin. A senior official of the bank would later describe this type of customer as a KBI, or Key Business Influencer. He was, indeed, a KBI, but not in a way ever imagined by the bank. His name was Charles J. Hawhey one of Ireland's most well-known and controversial politicians. The events of the summer of 1982 would see very different and improbable worlds collide. One was high politics, the other serious crime. By the end of July, Malcolm MacArthur had carried out two murders and triggered the biggest hunt for a killer in the existence of the Irish state until then. Detectives investigating the case did not know his identity at this stage, but knew they had to capture him quickly because the likelihood was he would kill again. By a series of extraordinary twists and coincidences, the case would worm its way to the very core of Charles Hawhey's government, would lead to the resignation of the Attorney General and would almost topple Hawhey himself. I'm Harry McGee of the Irish Times, and this is episode three of Gubu, a seven-part series looking at one of the most infamous murder cases in Ireland and its extraordinary political consequences. It wasn't called Watergate in, in the Irish context, it was called Gubu. Gubu, famous words, grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre and uh, unbelievable. It was grotesque, it was unbelievable, it was bizarre, it was unprecedented. It was a Gubu situation and Hawhey was right in the middle of it. People, you know, saw all kind of conspiracies during that 81, 82. It was crazy stuff. I mean, the place became a bit crazy for a year or two. Though they never met in their lifetimes, the narratives of Charles Hawhey and Malcolm MacArthur would become inextricably linked. When you look at their separate histories, there are commonalities. For one, both had wretched childhoods. They also shared a fear of poverty, the desire for riches and extravagant lifestyles. 
It's important not to make too much of them because the motives and actions of both could not begin to be compared. Put simply, one was a murderer, one was not. MacArthur killed to get money, Hawhey brazenly borrowed it, with no intention of ever giving it back. So how did a murder hunt end up drawing in that generation's towering political figure? I'm Gary Murphy, I'm Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University, and I'm the author of a book called Hawhey, the biography of Charles J. Hawhey. I think everybody has a view of Hawhey, everybody of a specific age. Remember, he was a senior politician from 1957 and served until uh, 1992 and was extraordinarily uh, controversial as much for his private life, his kind of shielded private life. And the private life, of course, became somewhat revealed in the light of his affair with uh, the socialite Cherokee and the extraordinary amount of money he had received from a variety of wealthy benefactors to the tune of at least some eight and a half million pounds and perhaps more. Does a million pounds mean anything to you as Minister for Finance? Not at all, no. I, I find it just as difficult as anybody else to grasp the idea of what a million is. The bank's new customer in 1973, the KBI, was given a checkbook and Charles Hawhey began to spend heavily on it. He ended up borrowing £1 million with no intention of paying any of it back. To its cost, the bank belatedly realised the kind of key business influencer Charles Hawhey really was. Hawhey lived in Kinsale, a massive mansion with 300 acres of prime land, designed by the celebrated 18th century architect James Gandon. He owned a stud farm, he ate at Dublin's most expensive restaurants. He drove a Daimler and a Mercedes. He wore bespoke suits and Charvet shirts. Of all the things Charles J. Hawhey has been accused of, being a slave to fashion hasn't been one of them, until today perhaps. The tribunal revealed he spent thousands of pounds on French shirts made by one of the most exclusive makers. Charles Hawhey also owned an island off the Kerry coast, in Ishvikalon, where he had built his holiday home. This is his island, which he had bought in 1974. Although he is some £600,000 in debt to the banks, but he writes a cheque for £25,000 to the then owners and populates the island later on with a, with a house and with shrubs and whatnot. Um, and the place he was often go to for, for breaks. Hawhey kept on spending flagrantly. At one stage, a senior Allied Irish Banks official tried to get Hawhey to return his chequebook. He reported back to the board that at that stage, Hawhey became quite vicious and threatened he could be a troublesome adversary. There is insecurity in the beginning of his life. He certainly was somewhat stalked, I think, by the, the poverty of his background. Later on in life, he gives an interview where he talked about growing up working class up to the age of, of seven. And then afterwards, I mean, he is racked, I think, with a certain insecurity as well when he is Taoiseach because he's got a divided cabinet. And, you know, there's a school of thought to say that they were completely right, that he couldn't be trusted. People distrusted him on Northern Ireland. He was carrying on an extramarital uh, affair. Hawhey was small in stature, but had a commanding presence. With his widow's peak hairline, aquiline features and blowtorch blue eyes, he could intimidate opponents with a trademark basilisk stare. Emily O'Reilly is now European Ombudsman. 
She was a political journalist in Ireland. At the time, Charles de Hoy was at the height of his powers. I always felt that, that Ireland was too small for him, and that's why he had to be larger than life. I remember somebody telling me once, an old friend of his, when Hawhey was growing up, he was very poor, and his family were very poor. His father had been invalided out of the army, so they didn't have much money. And this friend of, of Charlie Hawhey's, when he was a young man, you remember going into the kitchen, and the father was in, was in a wheelchair, a particular chair from which he, he rarely moved because he was, you know, he was disabled. And he remembers that, that the carpet was, was worn just from, just from that chair. And it's, it's an image that resonated with me. Now, he said that, you know, it gave Hawhey a hatred of poverty, a fear of poverty from that moment on. He certainly got over his fear because he became fairly instantly and quite miraculously very rich. People who, who loved him, adored him, liked him, voted for him, just thought this was great. And they expected somebody of, of the charisma and, and stature, not in the literal sense, of Charlie Hawhey to have this, as if they just magically emerged and, and attached them from him. Of course, later on, we knew different things. The whole story has never come out, but clearly there was something fishy going on. Charles Hawhey was, without doubt, the most colourful and controversial Irish politician of the late 20th century. He mixed brilliant vision with personal corruption. Hawhey had been a brilliant Minister for Finance in the 1960s. At the same time, he had amassed huge riches and properties which were never explained and lived a lifestyle that was far beyond the reach of an Irish politician at the time. To quote John Randolph's famous put-down of the 19th century US politician Henry Clay, so brilliant, so corrupt, like a rotting mackerel by moonlight, he shone and stank. The popular narrative of Charles J. Hawhey was of a self-made man, a classic rags-to-riches story. For Malcolm MacArthur, the pendulum was quickly swinging the other way, from riches to impending penury. Malcolm MacArthur came from just outside Trim, the attractive county town of County Meath. Around 1906, MacArthur's grandparents moved into Bremount, a large Georgian farmhouse with almost 200 acres of prime land in Summerhill, Larrakar. Daniel MacArthur was 36 years of age and his wife Mary was 30. They had moved from Scotland to this farm in Meath. They had three young children, two boys and a girl. Two other boys would be born in the years after they moved in. The MacArthurs were well off. The house was vast with 20 rooms. The family could afford a governess, domestic servants, coachmen and farm labourers. Their fifth child, born in 1910, was Daniel MacArthur, his father's namesake. He would eventually inherit the house and its lands and farm it until his death in 1971. He was also the father of Malcolm MacArthur. Can you tell me a little bit about Malcolm MacArthur and your knowledge of him? Oh yeah, well Malcolm attended the convent uh, junior school. Then he came up to the Christian Brothers in his first year. This is Jim, a farmer from County Meath and a contemporary of Malcolm MacArthur. He preferred not to give his surname. He was the very same as any of the rest of us. There was absolutely no difference whatsoever in Malcolm. In fact, you see, a lovely fellow, you know. His father was Scottish and 
Daniel, and there was a lot of land. I think there was a couple of hundred acres of land, and very good land, as you can imagine. It was very much an estate house, more than a farmhouse, bigger than a farmhouse. And um, he was a great farmer, uh, Daniel. He was really a good, uh, great dairyman, and he really did everything right. He met Irene Murray anyway, they married, and they just had one child, and that was it. Now, they seemingly weren't that terribly compatible, you know. Daniel MacArthur and Irene Murray married in 1943. She also came from a wealthy landowning family in the Midlands. Three years later, in 1946, their only child, Malcolm, was born. This is Irene MacArthur's description of what Malcolm MacArthur was like as a child. She was interviewed by broadcaster David Hanley back in 1983. Well, as a child, I think he was probably very shy. And I think when he grew up, he was very shy. And being an only child, of course, he didn't have other children to play with. But uh, to be fair to him, he has always said in recent years that his childhood was very happy. From all accounts, the MacArthur's marriage was not a happy one, with loud and violent rows. There are a raft of stories surrounding Malcolm MacArthur's childhood. They differ in detail, but they follow similar themes. That he was a lonely child, ignored by his own parents, largely brought up by the housekeeper. That he was a pawn in their volatile relationship. One anecdote recounts Malcolm leaving Bremount to walk to school while his parents were having a huge row. As he walked down the curved driveway, his mother's car sped past him as she stormed off. Moments later, his father's car did the same thing. Neither had bothered to stop for their son. Here is Irene MacArthur, his mother, describing her rather distant relationship with her son. I carried on in the tradition that I had been brought up in, and that is the children are seen and not heard. And therefore, I saw him every day, and I went out doing my gardening and my horses and whatever else was on, and um, this girl came in and taught him. After they separated in 1962, Malcolm remained at home with his father. Irene MacArthur talks about the background as being one where there was violence. The accounts of the father, Daniel, paint a brutish and penny-pinching man who had constant bitter rows with Irene and later with Malcolm. Here is Irene's account of a vicious row between father and son, which occurred when Malcolm was 17. There was a tussle in the cobblestones and his father split his hand right up, you know, there just between the thumb and first finger. It's been reported that he bit him. That's right, he bit him. He had, I think it was about five stitches. This is Jim again, who attended Trim's Christian Brothers School along with MacArthur. He was always well-dressed, very well-dressed, very well-turned out. I say somebody looked after him anyway. You know, at that time he was only 13, 14. But I believe it was the um, Gate Lodge people that looked after him and turned him out, you know. He was there outside the door when the minibus would pull up and he'd be seen off by the, the lady of the lodge. Was he always well-spoken? You said he was well-turned out, but he was he, I mean, he has an Anglo-Irish accent, essentially. Did he have that no, at the time? he had a very ordinary Mead accent. No, he had nothing, nothing beyond the ordinary local kind of, shall we say, rural 
come uh, not educated accent no, but at school he'd be okay like the, used, the lads used to be cra- having crack with him and that sort of playing tricks on him and he'd play tricks on them but absolutely no different than anyone else beyond that he didn't do sport but that was nothing nothing wrong with that he was a, a very intelligent fella I would think and uh, did well I think he could have done very well at, at school or further education but there was nothing nothing extraordinary about him at all I was deeply shocked afterwards when I realised. The late Homan Potterton was the director of the National Gallery of Ireland. He grew up in County Meath and recalled meeting MacArthur at Bremont when they were both children. In his autobiography, he described the encounters, and I quote, Daniel MacArthur lived outside Trim on a farm of several hundred acres with an attractive Georgian farmhouse called Bremont. There was a small boy of our own age there with whom we could play about the farmyard. He was called Malcolm and was an only child. He was also a lonely one. His parents' marriage was not a happy one. In fact, it was a disaster. And his mother, Irene, was rarely at Bremont. Malcolm was very much neglected. This was sometimes discussed by my mother and father within the family's hearing. And as small children do, I took it all in. I never knew Malcolm as an adult, but I have happy memories of playing with him as a child in the sunny farmyard at Bremont. In light of what happened later, it is obvious that demons lurked there. Charged together with three other men. Mr Hoy, the former finance minister, his arm in a sling from the effects of a recent accident, and Mr Blaney, the former minister of agriculture, were in court on charges of conspiring to import arms illegally into the Republic. It is 1970. Charles Hawhey has been the high-flying minister for finance, but his career has stalled dramatically. He and other ministers stand accused of having been involved in a plot to import arms, as societal violence has begun to erupt in Northern Ireland. I say tell them to get help here before we are murdered. They were just there to butcher us last night. What do you want the government here to do now? We want help. Get the military, get somebody in to help us. A consignment of arms imported from Vienna was seized in Dublin airport. It was suspected the arms had been funded from a sum of £100,000 given by the government for relief of besieged nationalist communities in Northern Ireland. The accusation was that a secret cabal of ministers, including Hawhey, had been involved in a clandestine operation to purchase arms for the IRA. Professor Gary Murphy, the author of his biography, takes up the story. Hockey, as Minister for Finance, was the man with his hand uh, on the tiller. He was a notorious hands-on minister, so the idea that he didn't know what was going on, which was his defence in the arms trial, beggar's belief. On the other hand, and there's no real evidence, I think, to suggest that Hockey had signed off on such a plan or such a, such a plot, and it's a labyrinthine tale, and it comes down to whether... Jack Lynch as Taoiseach, Hockey as Minister for Finance and that government had agreed to import arms to arm the provisional IRA. Uh, and in my research on Hockey, I find no evidence whatsoever that Hockey was enamoured with violence or took violence casually. Acquitted in the subsequent trial, Hockey was ostracised by the Fianna Fáil leadership and was demoted to the backbenches for much of the 1970s. 
I enjoyed power because the things power enabled you to do. And I think that's the important thing about power, uh, that you use it, use it to shape things, to improve things, to develop things. And I certainly miss that very much. He then began to play a long game, a patient and unglamorous comeback trail. He visited every branch of the party in Ireland and cultivated the grassroots of what was the largest political organisation in the country. It became known as the Rubber Chicken Dinner Circuit, a reference to the dinners he ate while on the road. Throughout his career, Hahi had always succeeded to cultivate a man-of-the-people image, but it was in marked contrast to his personal lifestyle. This is Olivia O'Leary, prominent political journalist and broadcaster, who interviewed Charles Hahi many times. The mistrust of Hahi goes back to a whole combination of things. I think it primarily went back to the arms trial, even though, as we know, Hahi was not found guilty of anything. But there was also the feeling that Hahi, in all sorts of ways, cut corners. And there was a feeling that he would play the green card, how it would play well with a particular section of the party. So there were a whole series of things, but you can't rule out that the arms trial was the basic reason why people were worried, because there was a feeling at the time that we might all have been brought into a major conflagration. Hahi's predecessor as Taoiseach, Jack Lynch, won a landslide general election for Fianna Fáil in 1977. But with Ireland's economy declining, his government's fortunes quickly plummeted. Charles Hawhey and his supporters were biding their time to make a move. The tipping point came in late 1979, when Fianna Fáil lost two by-elections for seats the party had held in Lynch's stronghold of County Cork. Here is Frank Dunlop, who was government press secretary for Lynch and also for Hawhey. He accompanied Lynch on a trip to Washington and Boston in 1979. When we came to 1979 and we were in America, we were on a state visit to the United States and Jimmy Carter was the president and we were, had a state banquet in the White House and we were treated as one is on these state visits like royalty. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America, His Excellency the Prime Minister of Ireland and Mrs. Lynch. Two by-election results in Cork came through on the start of the state visit and Jack Lynch was absolutely flabbergasted and shocked and physically, in, you know, showed it in his features. Back at home we have some progress to report, we have difficulties, we went into these difficulties today with the President, with the Secretary of State. With the... uh, Jack called me aside one evening. And Jack was very fond of a glass of paddy, and I think he had uh, one or two glasses of paddy. And um, he said, look, I want to tell you something. And I said, fine. And he said, look, I'm going to resign. As I said on the White House lawn today, May God's blessing be with you and with your work. Lynch did resign. It paved the way for Charlie Hawhey's comeback after a decade in exile. After a bitter leadership battle, he became Taoiseach and leader of the country. As it were, all those rubber chicken dinners 
had come home to roost. It was a time of huge political change. The country was facing into a recession. Soon after becoming leader, he made a TV address to the nation. In the full knowledge of his own excessive lifestyle, the irony of what he said was not lost on many people. Good evening. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. And the picture I have to paint is not, unfortunately, a very cheerful one. The figures which are just now becoming available to us show one thing very clearly. As a community, we are living away beyond our means. Hahi had many political enemies. Party colleagues, the opposition, civil servants, journalists. His leading internal critic in Fianna Fáil was George Colley, who had lost out to Hahi in the leadership race. In a famous put-down of Hahi that year, Colley spoke of low standards in high places. The other dominant figure in Irish politics was Gareth Fitzgerald, leader of Fine Gael. Where did you start your politics? Well, my father was in politics, and I suppose it, the interest came from there. He was involved in a national movement for independence, as my mother was, and was a minister in the first government. And uh, he was a minister for 10 years, and I was brought up there for the political background. So politics was a possibility for me. But I didn't enter politics till late in life. I was, in fact, uh, age 39 before I went in. There was extraordinary turmoil, both economically and politically, and in the middle of it, you had two outstanding figures, which was, of course, Gareth Fitzgerald and, and Charlie Hockey. So it became a bit of a punch and Judy show between the two of them for a great deal of the time. And generally, Gareth was Gareth the Good, and generally Hockey was the guy over, over whom there were question marks. But I think one of the reasons there were such major question marks, if you look back, was that within his own party, within Fianna Fáil, uh, from the very beginning of his period as leader of Fianna Fáil, made it clear that he didn't trust him. Colley insisted that he have a veto over the appointment of the Minister for Defence and the Minister for Justice. He was saying quite clearly, this guy is not to be trusted on his own to look after the country. The country is not in safe hands. Charles Hockey had risen from poverty to conspicuous wealth and also enjoyed an extravagant lifestyle. He dined at the fashionable and expensive Le Coq Hardy, had his own yacht, the Celtic Mist, travelled by helicopter, kept a stable of horses, and hunted with the Fingal Harriers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As we learned earlier, his riches were not all they seemed to be. He had run up debts of £1 million with the bank during the 1970s, at a time when the average annual salary of a TD was £5,000. In the 1990s, after he had retired from politics, it would emerge that Hahi's entire career had been bankrolled by benefactors to the tune of a breathtaking €40 million Euro in today's terms. A tribunal of inquiry concluded that the payments were corrupt. Olivia O'Leary is of the view his obsession with power and status may have derived from a deep insecurity. When you live on the basis of myth, this sort of half-world that he lived in. He loved putting the myths out there, you know, and terrific with women. Um, oh, never any public acknowledgement that he had been unfaithful to his wife, but quite liked the word to go out, that he was a, a, a legendary leader who was virile in every way. So he played to this larger-than-life set of myths and, you know, that smell of cordite. He didn't mind the smell of cordite being around him either. He liked people to know he was dangerous. And what always strikes me about how he, this guy was so bright, he would have become leader of his party and he would have become Taoiseach without ever having to take shortcuts. But deep down, he didn't believe in himself. And that's why he took shortcuts. Hahi always saw himself as an outsider amongst those politicians whom he considered to be establishment figures. In a different way, Malcolm MacArthur would have seen himself in the same vein, an outsider amongst those young rural Meath boys who grew up with him in the late 1950s. There is a particularly striking photograph from that time. It shows a Gaelic football team from Summerhill that took part in street leagues in 1959. Most of the boys are kneeling and standing in two rows. Smiles creased across their faces. On the far left of the photograph, we see a boy standing clearly apart from and some paces behind the rest of his teammates. He is a handsome boy with hair that is bristle thick. He is wearing a jacket over his football jersey. His expression is ambivalent. It's Malcolm MacArthur. Is he part of the team or is he apart from it? It almost looks like he deliberately distanced himself from the rest of the boys. It reinforces the image of him being an outsider. I left Trim CBS in 1962, did leave insert, and I'd forgotten completely about him because he went off to do something in America and I, try, I stayed on farming. So, no, we, I wouldn't have known him uh, afterwards. He did indeed go to America. One of his uncles, Jack, had emigrated to the US in the 1930s and had become a judge in California. He was an irregular visitor back to Ireland during Malcolm's childhood. At his invitation, the 17-year-old moved to the States to attend university. 
Four years later, he graduated from the University of California, Davis, with a degree in economics and history. There is the real danger that more and more young people may follow the call to turn on, tune in, drop out. By this stage, the flower power movement had overtaken Northern California, especially the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. MacArthur conspicuously ignored it, cultivating the image of a foppish young fogey. Well, there are the hippies. They offer a spurious attraction of the young, a corruption of the idea of innocence. Nothing in the world is as appealing as real innocence, but it is by definition a quality of childhood. People who can grow beards and make love are supposed to move from innocence to wisdom. On his return to Ireland in 1967, Malcolm MacArthur rarely worked. He applied for a master's course in Trinity College, but never completed the course. He lived in Bremount sporadically with his father, with whom he often quarrelled. His father became ill and spent part of 1971 in a nursing home. He recovered and returned to Bremount in October that year. However, he took ill on the day of his return. Daniel MacArthur died three days later at the age of 61. He lived a very high life. He looked for his dowry out at the farm and got it and went off and spent it. Ill drift. Kept in with the academic people in the um, university life. He liked university life. He liked the good life, the good time, and mixed with the legal people. As academic as you could possibly get, Malcolm got them. Here's how journalist Brenda Power, who was a court reporter for the Irish press in 1982, remembers how he looked. He looked like Malcolm MacArthur. He looked exactly like Malcolm MacArthur, who has become almost an iconic figure. Because he was extraordinary. I mean, he wore a dicky bow in Dublin in the 80s. You know, that in itself would nearly turn heads in the street. Um, he was very striking looking man with, with curly hair, tall as, as far as I remember, and had a, a very particular sort of to the manner born look about him, tweeds, an air of elegance and, and sort of sophistication. His mother, Irene, said that Malcolm MacArthur had inherited one trait from his father. Here she is talking to RTE's David Hanley in 1983. His father invented stories, which he eventually believed. Oh yes, his father fabricated stories to everybody. I mean, that was quite standard. There was a widespread assumption he held postgraduate degrees from both Trinity College Dublin and Cambridge University. He held neither, but did little to dispel the myths. MacArthur always portrayed himself as being an academic. Turns out that, again, that was another Walter Mitty. That was Stephen Connolly. He's the nephew of Patrick Connolly, the mutual friend of MacArthur and Hawhey. We will hear more from him later. What kind of Dublin did Malcolm MacArthur socialise in in the 1970s? There's a music video of the Thin Lizzy song Old Town shot around that time. It shows lead singer Phil Innes standing on a barge travelling down the River Liffey. The Dublin we see is bleak, shabby and run down. It looks more like a Soviet Union port than a cosmopolitan European city. 
Hidden away, however, there was a bohemian side. Here's Emily O'Reilly, then a young journalist, now the European Ombudsman. As an intern in Woman's Way at the time, believe me, Harry, I was not part of that demi-monde. You know, I was not, I was not going to those parts. <laughs> but, but I recognise what you say. I mean, no matter how poor it was, you know, there was always this lovely, wonderful pub, journalistic, literary, political culture. Certainly, you know, Dublin, no matter how bleak and dreary and, you know, poor it was, there was always a very rich seam of interesting life being lived in, 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 in the pubs and the bars that she mentioned and others. The fashionable bars that she mentions were the Bailey and Bartley Duns. During the early to mid-70s, Malcolm MacArthur's social life revolved around those fashionable city centre pubs. Bailey was very sophisticated. He had people coming in with their turned-up collars and their big brown Thomas bags or their Switzer's bags as they were then. It was like a fashion show. It was like the peacocks strutting. That's Bill Hughes, a prominent television director. Brown Thomas and Switzer's were both large department stores in Dublin's main shopping street, Grafton Street. Bartley Dunn's, you got the countryman, you got the working man, and you got the criminal underground in there. It was just funny times, and, and everybody was stratified. Hughes's reference to stratified is significant. He is a long-time gay activist. At the time, homosexuality was still a criminal offence in Ireland. Hughes describes the Dublin he returned to in 1980 after spending five years in drama school in England. Everything was dull and grey and there were bars, but it was illegal to be gay. But everything, everybody was hiding in plain sight. One of the subtexts of Gubu surrounds a rumour of gay affairs, something that would have been regarded as taboo in Ireland at the time. For our purposes at this moment, the Bailey and Bartley Duns are important because it was there that MacArthur met his future partner, Brenda Little, and her close friend, a barrister by the name of Patrick Connolly. Later, there were lurid rumours widely circulating about MacArthur and Connolly. They were not true. Neither man was gay. We will touch on those rumours later in the series. What is important for now is that Patrick Connolly would unwittingly become a central figure in this very unusual narrative. Um, Stephen Connolly, um, nephew of Paddy Connolly, godson of Paddy Connolly, and I suppose lifelong friend as well, um, in the exact same I was with my father. My father was my best friend, Paddy, and my father were equally the best of friends, extraordinarily close, in a very sort of deep way. Patrick Connolly and his brother, Stephen's father, Tony, grew up in Old Town, North Dublin. They were scholarship boys who went on to have exemplary careers. Tony as an executive with the Irish Sugar Company, Patrick as a barrister. They were very close and both were fanatic followers of Gaelic football and hurling throughout their lives. They used to attend Croke Park on a religious basis. During the war they'd cycle from Old Town over to Swords and then take the bus from Swords into town. They would stand on the terraces and they'd, they'd remain standing for the entire day. GA and sport was an absolute religion. The GAA connection will play an important part later as another of the strange twists in this, the strangest of cases. As a young man, Connolly excelled academically. He was also a champion debater while at UCD in the 1950s. Patrick Connolly's first prominent national case was in the high-profile arms trial 
1970. That was the trial where ministers were accused of organising a gun plot for the IRA. Connolly was the junior counsel for one of the defendants, Charles J. Hahi. Hahi was acquitted in the trial and struck up a strong friendship with the barrister who had represented him. Here, Stephen Connolly describes how that friendship developed during the 1970s. They remain friendly throughout. I mean, Paddy would be a regular visitor out to Concealy. He often tells a story being out there one time and how he gave the guests a choice of, of wine. My uncle knew his wines extremely well. And how he looked at him and said, I knew I was making a mistake by offering you that choice because it was a very rare bottle of wine. So anyway, Paddy would have, would have slept out there numerous occasions after dinner parties and stuff. I suppose they had a, an intellectual connection. They both were followers and interested in, in the arts, opera, music. I mean, Howie was a very different person because he had that political side to him, whereas my uncle was a very reserved person. He never wanted the limelight, which is why this whole thing had such a, an, an impact on him. He's just not that type of person. Around the same time as he was striking up a friendship with Howie in the early 1970s, Paddy Connolly had a chance encounter with a young woman in Dublin city centre. Brenda Little was selling raffle tickets for a charity based in North County Dublin, close to where Connolly had grown up. From that conversation, they struck up a friendship that lasted a lifetime. In the early 1970s, they went to the opera and cinema together and socialised in pubs like the Bailey and Bartley Duns. Malcolm MacArthur was also a regular at those pubs of the 1970s. He and Little first met in the Bailey in October 1974. They began going out and soon after they moved in together. They then moved to London. The couple returned to Dublin in early 1975 and lived in Fitzwilliam Square near the city centre. Their only child, a boy, was born later that year. And then I didn't see him again until Christmas 1975 and he appeared with a two-month-old baby in the car and uh, just said that it was his and that he, a girl called him Miss Little, was its mother. There is very little evidence that Malcolm MacArthur ever worked. In that 1983 interview, his mother Irene said it was sad he never used his qualification as an economist. By the early 1980s, it was clear his inheritance was beginning to dwindle and he was borrowing heavily from his mother. He told her that his money was being held in a French bank, but he was unable to gain access to it. In Malcolm's case, I would say that he might have been a dreamer. And I suppose when there was a money problem and I had been asked for money, it was always, I'm only borrowing it off you and I'll be giving it back to you when I get my own money. By early 1982, it was all falling apart for MacArthur. He had frittered away his fortune through ill thrift, as his Meath contemporary Jim described it. Here's Tony Hickey, who was a detective sergeant with the murder squad. Never worked a day in his life, inherited 60 or 70,000 from the, the home farm. He was an only son when he was sold, and he swanned around Grafton Street. and. Uh, I don't think he ever enrolled in Trinity. He didn't, in fact. He told us he was doing astrophysics. He probably sat in on lectures, and I don't think he knew much about astrophysics. There was a general perception that he was independently wealthy. The wealth was running out. Connolly had remained friendly with the couple, 
but was not aware of their financial situation. He himself had recently bought a penthouse apartment in Pilot View, an upmarket development in the well-to-do coastal suburb of Dorky. Typical of his largesse, in 1981, Connolly gave the couple and their young child use of his old flat in Donnybrook and insisted they pay no rent. In May 1982, MacArthur and Brenda Little decided to move away from Dublin. Their destination was Tenerife in the Canary Islands. Brenda Little had been on holiday to the island before and thought it would provide a good place for a fresh start. They arrived on May 26th for what she hoped was an extended stay. Meanwhile, Charles Hawhey had struggled as Taoiseach in his attempts to deal with the sluggish economy and also trying to fend off internal rebels within his own party. An early election was called in late 1981, which Fianna Fáil lost. Hawhey found himself back in opposition. An unstable government was formed with his great rival, Fine Gael's Garrett Fitzgerald as Taoiseach. Hawhey's chief whip, Bertie O'Hearn, who later became Taoiseach himself, describes the volatility of all those short-lived governments. 81, 82, you know, for both governments, both for Gareth Fitzgerald and for Charlie Hawhey, things were very unstable. The, the national debt was growing, you know, the economy was, was weak, unemployment was, was high, it was ongoing instability. And then you had a rather ill-fated government led by Gareth Fitzgerald. And that fell flat in its face through a budget which you couldn't get through. John Bruton was the Minister for Finance in Gareth Fitzgerald's 1981 government. That government fell when it tried to tax children's shoes. Though obviously this 18% VAT rate on clothing and footwear is going to be extremely unpopular, will hurt families and so on. I can't understand the logic of a government that would put a tax on clothing and footwear. I, I'm absolutely horrified by that kind of proposal. The John Bruton budget in, in, in January 82 was defeated on the, on the VAT, on the shoes and a few other items. So that led to a surprise election. It's 9pm, Nova News, I'm Siobhan Purcell. So the political cat-and-mouse game is to continue over the weekend. One of the key independent deputies, Mr Tony Gregory, had further talks with Mr Hawhey today. Afterwards, he said it was clear that the country needs stable government for the next four or five years and that the people didn't want another election. So Fianna Fáil came back in with the support of the independents, famous Gregory deal, which I was part of bringing Charlie Hawhey to. Charles Hawhey once again became Taoiseach in February 1982. He came tantalisingly close to an overall majority, but needed the support of independence. All eyes turned on a newly elected teacher from one of Dublin's poorest areas. This is Peter Murta of the Irish Times again. Tony Gregory was a left-wing TD. Today he'd be most closely associated with people before profit, that sort of, that part of the political spectrum, but a very much a community TD in the north inner city around Sean McDermott Street. Hawhey entered into negotiations with him about financing for various projects that uh, Gregory wanted, and what emerged was the, the infamous Gregory deal, which was almost like a, a mini-budget for one TD in his constituency. Hawhey, perhaps, he, he was a politician of contrast. He had a, a very grand and extravagant lifestyle. But then there was the, the kind of the, the working class North mm. Dublin element yep. to, to him. 
and he was able to use that, I think, to good effect in terms of brokering a deal with Gregory at the time, where his uh, rival in Finnegal, Gareth Fitzgerald, perhaps wouldn't have had the acumen in terms of his politics to think along the lines of perhaps how he had. Yeah, he in wouldn't terms have. Been, the deal. I, I think that's true. I think he wouldn't have had quite quite the same common touch. How he, for instance, went to Gregory's office in the North Inner City you know, an area of great social deprivation and what have you. So he was going to him. He paid him that sort of respect. And there's that quote that Joe Joyce and I had in, in the book, The Boss, the sort of how he walks into Gregory's office and he says, you know what I want, so what do you want? <laughs> you, you know that I want your vote. Now what do you want from me? And so he would cut through kind of formalities and all the rest of it. And uh, uh, yeah, he had, a, he had a common touch when he needed it. So he assumed office in, uh, in March 1982 with the background I've described and also the immediacy of what was facing him, which was extraordinary opposition within his own party from a rump that never really accepted him and this extremely knife-edge political situation in the Dáil where he didn't have an overall majority and he was dependent on um, effectively buying the votes of, of a number of independent TDs to, uh, to give him some sort of stability. The government may have been deeply unstable, but at least Hahi was back as Taoiseach. He turned to his old friend who had represented him in the arms trial. Patrick Connolly's nephew Stephen said he was not expecting the offer of being appointed Attorney General. I remember talking to him about it at the time. It would have been a huge transition for him, dealing with, say, PI and again this rarefied atmosphere of the law library certainly to go in into the position. And um, I mean, I've looked at his diary um, since talking to you and, you know, he talked about it being a daunting task um, and meeting the civil servants and everything that lay ahead of him. Meanwhile, after a rocky start to government, Charles Hawhey had finally made it to the safe harbour of the summer recess. He prepared to go on his summer holidays to his island in Ishvikalon, unaware of the storm clouds gathering on the horizon. At around the same time, almost 3,000 kilometres away, Malcolm MacArthur was leaving another island, Tenerife. After only six weeks in their new home, he told Brenda Little he was going to Switzerland to sort out his finances. But unknown to her, he went straight back to Dublin. Here is the school contemporary, Jim. When his own dowry ran out, he had to get more money because he was in, he was used to this lovely lifestyle and he was out in, was it Mallorca or uh, with the Canary Islands or something? He was in the Canary Islands, yeah. Yeah, with her and um, the money ran out. He left the child and uh, his partner there and then came home to get money and this is how he got it. Now he was on his operas. Desperate situations required desperate remedies, he later told guards. He had read newspaper reports about successful IRA armed robberies in Ireland. He set about organising what he called a heartless, cold-blooded operation to obtain funds. He was quite prepared to kill anybody who got in his way. And he's just running out of money. He can't maintain his lifestyle. He's not much good with finances except for spending money. And he needs money. He had read the papers, it seemed to be a lot of bank robberies. It seemed to be easy enough to get cash if you went into a bank with a gun. He wanted a gun, he wanted a car. Patrick Connolly, for his part, 
had unwittingly become the pivot for everything. He was friends with Hahi, and through Brenda Little, he became friendly with Malcolm MacArthur. Those friendships would remain on parallel tracks for a decade. But then, in the summer of 1982, they would collide spectacularly. Did you find it um, hard to reconcile this figure in 1982, this man with the dicky bow and the swept back hair and the cravats, with the Mark Malcolm MacArthur that you knew yeah. when you were a child? No, I was never surprised at him turning out with his dicky bow and his hairdo or whatever. Like, he was a fellow, I'd say, that looked after himself. Then the whole thing spilled out again. Then there was the Attorney General and, and the government and all sorts of things, and they were embarrassed. And it was a huge thing to happen out of a small, little individual, in a way, in Summerhill, County Mead, that this individual would bring down a government or there or thereabouts or whatever. So it was, yes, it was big, big time, big time news. Next time on Gubu, Malcolm MacArthur begins to carry out armed robberies, but they go spectacularly wrong. Gordy trying to find the killer move their search to the south of Dublin City and start to get closer to solving the case. Gubu is an Irish Times audio production. It was written, produced and presented by myself, Harry McGee. The editor of Gubu was Enda O'Dowd. The executive editor and senior producer of audio at the Irish Times is Declan Conlon. Sound mix was by JJ Vernon. Graphics was by Paul Scott. The title music was by Oracle. We thank the RTE Archives, Reuters, the Jimmy Carter Library, the Ronald Reagan Library and the Oireachtas TV Archive. For further comprehensive coverage of the Gubu scandal, including articles, notes, photographs and maps, visit irishtimes.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support future long-term projects, please consider subscribing at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.